Alright, well, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. Today, on a very special episode, I'm going to talk about a concept from um, a book by Joshua Gang called Behaviorism, Consciousness, and the Literary Mind. And I have more written out than usual because I want to be a little bit more precise than usual. Anyway, uh, so this book, um, Behaviorism, Consciousness, and the Literary Mind, is useful to me, at least, because I'm uh, trying to write a chapter about Morse Peckham's theory of literature and literary criticism, and Peckham was a sort of behaviorist. Uh, but Behaviorism, Consciousness, and the Literary Mind, kind of a long title now that I think uh, say it a few times, um, would also be worth reading to anyone who's interested in the relation between uh, psychology and literature, both in how the history of psychology has influenced 20th century literature and how psychology can help us understand literature. If I were writing a more general review of the book, I'd have many other good things to say about it. But today I'm just going to uh, focus on and explore and critique one idea from the book. I'm going to look at Josh's concept of the literary mind. I'm going to refer to him in kind of familiar terms since I've uh, talked to him before, so I'll call him Josh. Uh, hopefully that's not weird, but it feels more comfortable to me at this uh, moment. Uh, first, I should say that uh, for me, as a, just as a kind of um, warning or caution, I should say that for me as a pragmatist, the importance of an idea is not whether it's right or wrong, true or false, but whether or not it's useful to us in adapting to the world. So we never really know what's right or wrong, but we can get glimpses of what works or not in the various situations we're in. So a concept may or may not on this account be useful to us. But insofar as it is useful, this utility may be positive or negative. What I mean by that is um, on, the on the positive side, a concept may, when taken into our conceptual arsenal, so to speak, um, allow us to more productively engage with the world. Or negatively, it may be rejected. We may reject it while it serves, um, serves us as an opportunity, opportunity to sharpen the concepts still on board, our own concepts. So for me, one question is, is the concept of literary minds useful? And if so, in which sense is it useful? And I'll come back to that later. So what is, what is a literary mind? So Josh, in his, book, uh, in his book, contrasts literary minds with actual minds. Actual minds, uh, for Josh, generally have the capacity for phenomenal experience. This is a quote. They generally have the capacity for phenomenal experience. We might say subjective experience or something like that. Um, I think this is what maybe he means in his title by consciousness. We attribute actual minds to living bodies, I guess. Um, his, I'm not, his discussion of actual minds is not quite um, full enough for me. I mean, it would need more clarification, but perhaps he would say that we attribute actual minds to living bodies and about, uh, so about literary minds, so that was actual minds. Literary minds, um, Josh tells us, are, uh, so he writes this about literary minds. All literary mind, all a literary mind needs is a small amount of language that either purports to represent a mental state 
or implies the existence of mental activity. It isn't necessary for this language to be embodied by or attributed to a thinking subject. When we refer to a character's mind or a poem's affect or what a novel wants, we are referring metonymically to these kinds of linguistic representations. So to kind of summarize that um, more complicated explanation, or maybe simplify it, um, over, oversimplify it, we get a literary mind from a bit of language which implies or represents mental activity. So the language, you know, a sentence, a paragraph, um, a poem, whatever, uh, represents maybe some kind of mental activity and this um, implies for us the existence of a mind. Well, I think I have um, some problems with these definitions, but it's a little bit hard to pinpoint what my uh, problem is. And I'll try to explore that. Hopefully it will become clear, uh, clearer as we go, but maybe not totally clear. And I think uh, maybe Josh needs to say more about actual minds for this distinction to be really convincing. As it is, he's sort of dropping us right, right smack dab into the middle of the problem of other minds, which I've uh, talked and written about before. Uh, to make a really clean distinction, I feel, between actual minds and literary minds, I think we need to be able to know these minds in different ways, maybe. Uh, Josh writes that Literary minds are inferred from bits of language. I would maybe say verbal signs, speaking semiotically. Um, so to me, we have to infer actual minds in the same way as we infer literary minds from language, although we also use nonverbal behaviors, so nonverbal signs, um, when they are available. Okay, so there's a, uh, a way in which we infer literary minds and actual minds in the same way. We refer them from signs. And when I say sign, I'm using Morse Peckham's definition as that to which we respond. A sign is some bit of the world, some perceptual configuration, which we are capable of responding to. And that could be a, you know, a gesture. It could be a bit of spoken language or whatever. Um, so let's take the case of a historical person, such as George Washington. I could infer from the writings by and about George Washington that the actual George Washington had an actual mind. This could be an inference. But this is only an inference from bits of language, right? I don't actually see George Washington. Um, I'll never meet George Washington. Um, but with a person in the present, like who's present to me, I can use other kinds of signs. Uh, there are more kinds of signs available for me to make inferences about this person. I can observe their nonverbal behavior to determine if they're able to make distinctions among objects like I can. You know, if they stop when the light is red and go when the light is green, um, I can see, uh, I can observe if they, uh, whether they can remember where they left their keys, for example, or if they can perform spatial reasoning tasks and so on and so on. Um, all, of the, uh, all of these are behaviors we commonly classify as mental. But they're known not by observing phenomenal experience per se, right? We can't observe someone's phenomenal experience, whatever that is, um, but by observing behaviors. We observe what they do, and very often these are verbal behaviors. 
So language um, is a key point, both in literary minds and actual minds, a, a key way that we uh, make inferences about what's going on. So Josh um, argues in his book that behaviorism is bad psychology, and I'm uh, again kind of simplifying here, but uh, Josh argues that behaviorism is bad psychology, but potentially good literary theory, or at least a good sensibility to bring to the interpretation of literature. So uh, he wouldn't necessarily say that behaviorism provides us with a theory of literature. He prefers to talk, I think, about the behavioristic sensibility to approaching literature. Um, I find, however, I have to go the other way around. So I would argue that good literary theory or good interpretational practice must be based on good psychology. And I take some version of behaviorism to be good psychology and therefore as a basis for good literary theory. And I should, of course, emphasize, uh, remind you again that I'm uh, simplifying to kind of heighten a certain difference between my approach and Josh's approach. Uh, whatever literature is, I would say, making it and engaging with it are kinds of behaviors. The problem of liter uh, literary behavior is a subset of the problem of behavior in general. And our theory, our general theory of behavior then should also explain literary behavior, such as maybe believing that um, literary characters have minds. Uh, and so I wonder if the problem of literary minds is just a subset of the problem of literary objects. And uh, if the problem of literary objects is itself a subset of the problem of literary language and literary behavior. And those, of course, are subsets uh, of the problems of language and behavior in general. So what is going on? What are we doing when we read or think about any object or event in the world of, uh, or event in a work of literature? You know, what are we doing uh, when we read about some object, some person, some event, something going on in a piece of literature? This is a really, really complicated question, I think. Um, and there's different, there seems to be different things that people are doing with literature in different cultures, at different points in their lives, and so on. So sometimes we've believed liter literature to be a kind of moral instruction. Sometimes it seems to be a kind of moral subversion. Sometimes it's a kind of um, a play or pure aesthetic um, enjoyment or something like that. But I think anyway that this is where behaviorism points us to, the direction it points us in. It points us to the functions of literary representation in human life. What are these things for? And not just to things that seem to have minds but don't. So anyway, uh, I think Josh and I are coming at this topic from pretty different perspectives. Now, when I uh, talked to Josh, I suggested that literary minds might be better conceived as literary persons. And he pointed out correctly, I think, that we attribute mental properties, we impute minds to things other than literary characters. Um, for To take one of his examples in his book, he briefly uses, this is not a major example, but it's just one convenient thing to talk about. Um, so it's not a, not a big point in his book, but I just want to focus on this as an example. So he, ta uh, he uses the example of saying that the book 
Mrs. Mrs. Dalloway, so Virginia Woolf's book that she wrote called Mrs. Dalloway, and not the character Clarissa uh, in the book, Clarissa Dalloway. So the book wants people to be happy. Mrs. Dalloway wants people to be happy, the book. Um, and this is a, an ambiguous example to me because, well, it could mean different things. So there's a, a way we could rewrite the statement as saying that the intended or unintended effect of Mrs. Dalloway is to make people happy, right? So the book happens to make people happy. And we could speak metaphorically as saying that the book wants people to be happy. Uh, but if we take the statement to mean that there is some agency which we attribute to the book, Mrs. Dalloway, that, that wants us to be happy, it seems to be more useful to say that we are personifying or anthropomorphizing the book rather than, strictly speaking, attributing a mind to it. Um, and to me, at least, maybe to you, I don't know, uh, it seems strange to personify a book as opposed to the characters in a, in a book, but I have no doubt that some people do this. So in old, older cultures, people believed that sacred texts and other objects were endowed with a spirit of some kind. So it wouldn't surprise me if modern uh, some modern people attribute person-like qualities to objects like books, or believing that a poem has a certain affect and not just that reading it makes them feel a certain affect. So actually believing that the poem has experiences that affect, although it sounds very strange to me. Um, but the personification of non-living objects is a, a complex case, and I don't really want to get involved in that here, although there is there are things to be said about it from a behavioristic perspective. But uh, let's just, to be simpler, we're just going to focus on literary characters. And by character, I'm including also um, narrators and scribes, like the people who are not necessarily given physical um, physical attributes in a work of literature, but they still have a, a role in um, a piece of literature. So Josh argues that readers tend to see the minds of literary characters as comparable to their own, to the reader's minds. We see the minds of the characters as comparable to our minds. Um, so the, that these, we see that these, or we believe that these literary minds and our actual minds are members of the same category, the same kind of thing. And I think, although I'm not sure, I think he's saying that when we read about a character's thoughts, we tend to assume that these thoughts are um, maybe structured in the same way that our thoughts are structured, or perhaps that they even have the same type of existence. We think that the two kinds of minds are comparable. But technically speaking, for Josh, this is a category mistake because we're not, in fact, experience, experiencing the thoughts of an actual person, or these thoughts don't really have the same kind of existence as our thoughts, right? We're just reading words. So they're just words, they're not actual thoughts. Um, as, so as Josh puts it, we are imputing mental phenomena to non-mental substances. And a, a statement like this raises a lot of questions for me, which I'm not um, going to get too much into about what are non-mental substances um, or mental substances. So yeah, he says, would uh, describe this as a category mistake, call this a category mistake. And um, I do worry that I'm not expl explaining uh, Josh's argument very well here. Um, 
So to understand the situation that I think he's pointing to, I need to translate it into maybe my own terms or to terms that I find to be more concrete. So let's take um, Mrs. Dalloway as just a rough example. Um, so Clarissa Dalloway is a character in a book, a literary person, let's say. We know she's not a real person because the book Mrs. Dalloway is in the category of novels, and generally speaking, novels are not supposed to be about real persons. As I'll say later, there's um, things that we can and can't do with um, people in novels. There's a certain convention about what a novel is and what the things appearing in that novel are. Nevertheless, uh, we read about the literary person, Clarissa Dalloway, doing things and thinking things. And I think this is basically how we know about actual persons, too. We see or hear about them doing things. Sometimes they tell us their thoughts, or we can maybe guess their thoughts based on their behaviors. Um, so I think it's unnecessary to say or to um, maybe extract mind from Clarissa. I think it's unnecessary to say that we impute mind to Clarissa unless we're very careful about how we say mind. So does Clarissa have a mind? Well, so we know about Clarissa Dalloway, whatever Virginia Woolf has decided to tell us about her. And uh, from what Woolf tells us about her, we can make predictions about what Clarissa might do or think or feel in additional situations. And if that is mind, then maybe we can say um, Clarissa has a mind. Right? So if that's, uh, I guess, an inference about mind or an impute, uh, imputation of mind, then perhaps. But again, this I think this is what we do with real people. So we experience other real people in a certain range of situations, and we build up a set of expectations about their behavior. So is this a category mistake? So making kind of predictions about what Clarissa D uh, Dalloway would do. Um, you know, we ask, what would Jesus do? Is this a, a category mistake? to compare Clarissa Dalloway with a real person in this way and building up a set of expectations. Um, so far, I don't think so. At least it's not more of a category mistake than reading about George Washington and building up, or Jesus for that matter, and building up expectations about how he would think or act or do what he would do or think or feel in various circumstances or um, in observing your friend, someone you actually know in various circumstances and building up a similar set of um, expectations. So what would then be a category mistake? Well, uh, there's a character in the book Mrs. Dalloway named Septimus who commits suicide. So perhaps one day we decide that Clarissa in fact murder murdered Septimus and we seek to have her prosecuted in a court of law. After all, we think murder has no statute of limitations. She needs to be punished. Or perhaps we um, have come to admire, on the other hand, perhaps we've come to admire Clarissa's party planning abilities and seek to hire her to organize our next dinner party. To me, these would be category mistakes. In our culture, at least, literary persons are not subject to real legal or economic institutions. Um, so for me, the question is not really, the important question is not really whether literary persons have minds. Although I'm a kind of behaviorist, I'm quite happy to say that literary people have literary minds 
if by that we mean they have desires and thoughts and feelings, etc., that come out in the writing. Again, I personally, uh, personally find it odd to say that a poem or a novel, per se, has a mind. But for me, the question, the real question, is about what we can do with literary people. And literary people are able to come into certain kinds, but only certain kinds, of relations with other literary and non-literary persons and events. As game theorists might put it, they can enter into certain kinds of games, but not others. We cannot try them for murder in a non-literary court. We cannot operate them on, uh, on them in a non-literary hospital. We can't hire them to perform non-literary jobs and so on. We can know them in some of the ways in which we know real persons, but not all. They partake of some of the attributes of those whom we call real persons, but not all. This is where I think literary persons get their power and their mystery. Uh, to conclude, I would expect that Josh would disagree with at least some, and maybe a lot, of what I have just said. To be honest, I myself am not totally convinced by it. I'm working through these ideas. Uh, and Josh may think I've missed his point in some important way, and that very well may be. But I've been trying to respond in my own way to the problem that Josh is pointing us to, and I think it's an important problem. Uh, I've been using him, as I suggested earlier, uh, negatively in a sense, in the in that I'm adopting his con uh, not adopting his concepts so much as trying to use his concepts to sharpen my own. Uh, I'm not sure if my reframing of the problem of literary minds would affect at all um, Josh's analyses of um, Beckett, Pinter, and Kotzea, the main authors, uh, literary authors that he discusses. In general, I would think not much. And his analyses, I would just uh, throw out that his analyses are worth reading in and of themselves. So they're um, really interesting analyses of the various works of Beckett, Pinter, and Kutzea. Uh, but there are many places in which Josh writes about category mistakes in these literary works. Say, for example, um, in Beckett's play, Crap's Last Tape, which I feel are not, maybe not category mistakes at all. Or at least there are only category mistakes when approached from a certain intellectual tradition. Um, so I would, uh, I would say that um, category mistakes, such as when we compare literary minds to real minds, are much more convention-bound. I think uh, category mistakes are much more conven convention-bound convention than maybe Josh does. So when Beckett's character Crap listens, great name of course, uh, when Beckett's character Crap uh, listens to one of his audio tapes in the play, in Beckett's play, and he's got all these audio tapes that record his um, past thoughts, is he having a memory? So when he listens to one of these tapes, is he having a memory or just listening to some speech? I mean, what is that, what is going on here? Are these things logically comparable? Is listening to an audio tape of your past speech comparable to a memory? Is there a logical connection there or are these totally separate things? And I think it depends on your perspective on, and on the set of conventions you're bringing to bear on this situation. So a modern neurophysiologist could argue that they are indeed comparable because verbally recalling what you did yesterday is physically quite similar to hearing yourself describing 
what you did yesterday or what you thought yesterday. So maybe Beckett um, is pointing to an identity between hearing oneself and thinking. Um, there's a lot going on in the play. I don't who knows. <laughs> but um, on the other hand, a Cartesian or a panpsychist might view the situation differently than our um, hypothetical neurophysiologist and perhaps find uh, listening to tapes and thinking to be incompatible or incomparable for different reasons. Uh, so anyway, as you can maybe tell, I've had a lot of fun wrestling with this book, again called Behaviorism, Consciousness, and the Literary Mind. So if that uh, psychological approach to literature interests you, I recommend taking a look at it. Uh, but that is all for today, so thanks for listening, and have a good one.